As we continue to worship our awesome God, we open your Bibles with you. We'll be in Luke 19 on Facebook a couple of days ago. An acquaintance of mine asked the question, is anyone else preaching about a donkey? Uh, and I was tempted to say, me too. <laughs> Not Balaam's, but the one that Jesus wrote on. Luke 19 says this, starting in verse 28. <clears throat> and when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Beth, Beth, Bethany, yeah, I know, I know, it's one of those days. At the mount that is called all of it, he sent two of his disciples, saying, go into the village in front of you. Where on entering you will find a cold tide on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, where are you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent out went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down to the mounts, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Father God, as we come to continue to worship you through the singing, or through the opening of your word, Lord, I just pray that you would open our hearts to what your word has to say. That you would reveal yourself to us. The attributes of who you are. May you awaken the wonder in us as we spend time in your word, reading and learning more about who you are. Dear Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified. At this moment, I know I don't have the ability to do it on my own. But Lord, will you not make it turn out well? So Lord, by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with the necessary power and appropriate affection. Use this sermon, God, for your glory and your glory alone, for the joy of your people and salvation of the lost. And amen. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but uh, every time I go into a... Um, grocery store or shoppers. I noticed this at Shoppers Drug Mart the other day, and I was walking in there in the cash, and almost all the magazines are talking about royalty. It, it doesn't make any sense to me at all. Now, I, I know that our head of state is the queen and all those things, uh, but we're so far removed from royalty. And furthermore, most of the magazines are American. They fought a whole war on this. Yet... They're still obsessed with royalty and, and, the, and the queen and, well, specifically the, 
babies that are coming and all of these things. And it just boggles my mind about this. And there's lots of royal families in the world, but specifically Americans seem to be obsessed with the British ones. So the irony in that statement is even funnier. Uh, but here we are, and, and I think we really all are kind of somewhat obsessed of it ourselves. I know when uh, Joelle was younger, which one was getting married? One of them was getting married, and we watched the, the, the big, huge wedding that we could never afford with all of this fancy gowns and, and whatnot. And Joelle was pretending to be uh, one of the princesses and was getting married. She had her little blankie on. It was cute. I have a video just when she gets married. It's going to be there. Uh, God help my kids, because everything's recorded. Um, I, I, got, I don't have to worry about that at all. So, as we see these kings and these queens go on parade, the world stops to watch this regal procession as it grandly passes by. It doesn't matter if you're part of the country or not. Everyone's obsessed with watching the royalty walk through the aisle and the queen going like this. You know, like, nothing much going on except this. <laughs> But everybody stops to watch. And I think, the point to, I think it points to something a little bigger. And maybe that we were made to worship the king. In this passage, we will be looking at uh, this triumphant en- entry. Otherwise, today is otherwise known as Palm Sunday. It's a time that marks the beginning of what is called Holy Week. We see this on Friday. Uh, Jesus does amazing things during this whole week, including tearing up the temple, announcing who he is. This event is, a clearly, is clearly Jesus identifying himself as who he is. And then the next week to follow is the follow-through with that, all the way till his death on Good Friday. And his resurrection on Easter. And I'm going to plug it again. Easter Sunday, there's invites in the back. What an amazing thing it is. But here's the thing, as Jesus was doing this triumphant entry, Jesus wasn't in Jerusalem for his coronation. He was in the city to die. That's what he was there to do. The celebration that we see in this passage is not one that lasts, but here we still see a glimpse of who Jesus is. We see Jesus as a king who has perfect knowledge. And we see Jesus as a king who will be glorified. See, context is important. When you look at any passage, when you're reading it, it is a really bad idea to take a text of any part of the Bible on its own without reading what's going on on the other, either end of it. Okay, so the context is important, and this passage is just as important, because Jesus has just finished talking about something very interesting. Jesus has just talked about the parable of the ten menace. See, in verse 28, he says, and when he has said these things, which is the alarm that should go off in your head, maybe I should figure out what he has said before we continue on. See, immediately before Jesus enters Jerusalem, he announces judgment on those who will not welcome him as king over them. We see that in verse 27. It's a very powerful thing. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. That's not the Jesus with the blonde flowing hair on a green mellow hill singing Kumbaya. 
This is Jesus revealing who he is. He is full of grace. He's full of mercy. He is holy. Don't reject him. All further on, he does not direct this parable against these people simply because they hate him as his subjects hate their king. He's criticizing them for failing to carry out the mission God has entrusted them to do. Which is, I could preach that. Because in the parable, we have servants who are given a responsibility, and the responsibility, and one of them is not fulfilled. And that's who Jesus comes and judges. He is also referring to time between his death and return. See, at the final judgment of God, God will punish those who continue to be unfaithful to him. That's the point of that parable. And now he gets into this. And when he said these things, he went on ahead. See, Luke wants us to connect what we are about to read with what we have not, well, you should read, before the parable about a king. And then he says, he went on ahead. What is about to happen has a divine necessity that is being laid out before this event. Luke wants us to see something very important. That this is divine. That this is planned. That this is sovereign. We see this in Isaiah. It is the will of the Father that he shall crush his son for our iniquities. This isn't an accident. This is planned. And Jesus, as you will see, actually works through this in fulfilling other prophecies of who he is. So he went on ahead. For Luke, all history is salvation history. For God clearly controls and directs history's course. He had to. We're the ones that messed up. The Bible is very clear that no one seeks after God. When we see God as sovereign controller of history, the Christian can rest secure that even those events of history that seem so confusing. Let me tell you, uh, I, I, like I, I grew up in the current world we live in. And it makes my head hurt just thinking about it. I don't know what is happening. And I'm sure for those who have been on this planet longer than I have, they're even more confused than I am. But God is still sovereign. He's still on his throne. And even though things seem confusing, such as the rejection, the crucifixion of Jesus and Israel's rejection of the gospel message are not simply acts of cruel fate, but are under God's sovereign control and and rule. We need to understand that. Jesus dying on the cross as we enter into this Holy Week, as we get into Good Friday, is not an accident. It had to happen. And God orchestrates everything throughout history to make it possible for us to be reconciled before a holy God. Without this, we're still damned to hell. So he says to his disciples, go into the village in front of you. See, Jesus is, Jesus is aware and, and has a purposeful action in fulfilling this. It's funny. As you look at this text, you know, I, I struggled with this growing up because I've heard this text so many times. 
Right, so you're coming with it with this pre pre idea, this idea of uh, of of your Sunday school teacher teaching to you about all the whole and then and then you get into some sort of PTSD mode because you remember as a child being forced to walk down the aisle singing Hosanna with these palm trees. Yes, it wasn't the best time in my life, but the grandparents love it. Because you see in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the text continues on. They go into the village we don't know who the disciples are in all of the Gospels. They're never mentioned. But they go into this village and they untie this colt. And naturally, the owners come out and they go, what are you doing? Why are you taking this colt? And the idea here is, oftentimes we come into this text again, I come into it thinking of all the ways that I was raised and taught doing this. But... In the text, it reveals something. The answer to the question says, the Lord is in need of it. Right? They had to have known who the Lord was. So Jesus probably prearranged this, but this does not neglect the point that still stands, that God in his knowledge is following through with fulfilling the commandments through the prophecies that were told beforehand. So they continue on. And it's a cold that has never been sat on, because why not? He is, not? is he not the king of kings? Is it not befitting for his royal dignity that he should not have to share with previous users? But as he sends two of his disciples to the village, we see this interaction that is taking place. We see Jesus like someone whose eyes were in every place. Like someone who knew things unseen as well as things that are seen. See, when I look at these verses, I see a king who has perfect knowledge. So here's the point. The thoughts of Christ being a king who knows all things should really awake us, should it not? It terrifies me a little bit. The God knows everything. That thought that you thought, that malicious one, that little gossip that you said, he knows it all. For those men, the way that you look at that other woman, he knows it all. The great, he knows it all. It really should wake us up if we haven't repented and believed the good news. That Christ died for our sins and rose again. The great head of the church knows you and all that you do. Every bit of it, there is not a secret. The judge of all sees you continually and marks down all your ways. Christ knows it all and observes it all. If you speak secretly against another, Christ hears it. See, we stand before a holy God as sinful people. No one, not one of us is innocent. 
Christ has seen it all. And that sin, we are, and because of that sin, we are worthy of one thing and one thing only, and that is death. But Christ Jesus sits down from his throne to take upon himself our sin, to take my place on the cross, your place on the cross, so that everyone who repents of their sin and, and rests in his finished work, believes that Christ, what Christ did on the cross, will be saved. But there's another point in here of a, of a Savior who, who is perfect in knowledge. There's something different comes out for the Christian, for the person who has repented and believed in Christ. It brings amazing comfort. Continue to do good. The king's eye is always watching you. you know where, he knows where you are and what your daily trials are. There's not a word in your mouth or a thought in your heart but Jesus, uh, that, that he doesn't know, but Jesus knows it all. Take courage when you are slandered or misunderstood and misrepresented by the world and even those who claim to not be part of it. Think about how Peter describes Jesus. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Continue to walk in the narrow way, not turning to the left or to the right. When you hear the voice, give up, spare yourself this grief, you can stand up in their face and say, my king is looking at me. I desire to live and move as though he is here because he is. And when things seem to be unbearable as a believer, I can cry out as a God who sees, to the God who sees all things. And I was reminded about this this past week as I was spending time uh, in my devotions in Habakkuk 3. Verses 17 to 19 says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fails, and the, yield, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Though life seems unbearable, though I don't think it can get any worse, though I feel like I've lost all hope. Think about it. Though anything. Yet. He continues on. I will rejoice in the Lord. Why? I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like deers. He makes me tread on my high places. Even though life is unbearable. He seems out of control. There's so much confusion. I don't know what's going on. I don't know. I don't have the answers. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because he's the God of your salvation. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Because even though our bodies may fail, even though things get rough, even though the suffering that I'm enduring may never, ever go away on this planet, I still have hope. Because the answer, as I was reminded of last week, when we were in, Indi- in Indianapolis, is never no for the Christian. It's never no. 
It's yes or just wait. Because as the Christian, we know for those who have repented and believed, our hope is found in Christ and what he has done for us. When we die, we get to count it all as loss, as Paul says, because we get to go to heaven. And we get to stand before him. Finally, with my six-pack, standing before God. Hey, it's a perfect body. With any ailments that may have come into my way as I grow older, because I can feel them coming right now. I've done some dumb things in my life. Bad knees and back. I can praise God. He is the God of my salvation. He chose me. He reconciled me. Not because of my works, but because of his. I stand in his righteousness, not my own. He has imputed upon me his own righteousness so that I stand before the holy God as righteous because God is looking at me through his son's righteousness who obeyed all the law perfectly. And I rest in his finished work as the God who knows all things. And I can crawl up onto his lap Right? Like, I can't do this outside of Jesus and Jesus' work. I'm called a son of God purely because of what Jesus has done for me. Because I still screw up. And I still sin. I still, some reason, desire other things above him. He is the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. It's like the song that we were just singing. He's, he brings us to pastures. Awaken the wonder in our lives again. His royal entrance into Jerusalem was a momentary triumph because it has an impending tragedy. The triumph that shows his true identity and invites people to acknowledge him as their king. He's inviting you. If he's not your king, he's inviting you with this text. Because verse 27 is terrifying. Verses 41 to 44 are just as bad. And as I look at this passage, not only do I see a king who has perfect knowledge, in, 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 in a quick point, he is a humble king who has perfect knowledge. Because did you catch those things? He invites us to come with all of our raw emotions. Because he already knows what you're feeling, so just stop trying to fake it, because you can't fake it till you make it. He invites us with all our raw, raw emotion to come into his presence as the all-knowing God who sees all of that we are and invites us into the presence of the humble king, as the humble king. See, how do I know that he is humble? Because again, this passage is fulfilling what Zechariah is saying in, in 9 verse 9. Rejoice, O great Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Because he wasn't coming in there on a war horse. He was coming on a donkey. 
He had not come to overthrow the Romans through military might. No, Jesus was a new kind of king. As a king who knows all things, he had come in meekness and gentleness to be the Messiah, to be the one who would save. He would be the king of peace. If people accepted him, he would receive their praise. But if they rejected him, he would do nothing to defend himself as he entered and walked to the, to the cross, even to the very point of death but would also one day come to judge. you got to keep verse 27 in the back of your mind. This isn't the end. Jesus rides into our lives the same way today, with all gentleness and humility. He does not crush us with his superior might, but says, Come to me, all who labor and are heaven laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, Jesus is all-knowing. If Jesus is the king also of gentleness, then it begs a question here. Then everyone who loves him should serve him with the same kind of humility, should they not? But also we continue on in verses 35 to 40 that the king, he will be glorified. We see this. This is interesting. The disciples come along and they're throwing their their cloaks on the cold. His disciples are honoring him as king. And here's another point. This is extra. This is free. The text says disciples. I don't know about you, but as I was reflecting upon this, I don't know how many times I was taught, oh, you see how fickle the crowd is. They switch on a dime. No, it's two different crowds. It's the disciples that are praising God here. The ones that are yelling crucify him are the Pharisees. But that's for free. But here the disciples are. They're throwing their cloaks on the colts. As he continues on, they they start spreading their cloaks on the road. Extravagant expression of supreme honor that is being shown here. God, Jesus, is being glorified. And they cry out. And as he was drawing near already in verse 37, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God. You know, what's your response? The God of your salvation. Jesus, humbly mounted on the coal, walking to his death for you, for me. For those of us who have accepted his sacrifice, his gift, his free gift. What is your response? The disciples, they, they're, they're reflecting upon all of the amazing things that they've seen. And they've seen some pretty crazy stuff. Blind sea, walk, lame walking, dead rising. And they're praising God. Because Jesus has come to be their Messiah. But even this is temporary. We know that there is an impending tragedy that is about to happen. He comes to Jerusalem not to rule but to die Christ the creator, the creator of the universe, by whom and through whom all things are created, the sustainer of all things, the king of kings, the lord of lords, comes to die for us to take our place, 
to pay the price for our sins because we are all sinners. We have all rebelled against his kingship. So in his holiness, and his love, he takes our place so that anyone who repents and believes will be saved. And they continue as the disciples recognize this. They're rejoicing and praising. Why? For all that he has done. So again, let me ask these things. What is your response to all that God has done for you as king of kings? Has he not done great things? Think about it. At the most, if you're a Christian, you should say he saved you. At, at, at the most, well, you know what I mean. The first thing, at least. I should at least get one thing out of you. But if you really start sitting there and you're thinking about it, it just keeps going. It just keeps going. How do you respond to the great acts of Jesus? And the disciples continue on. Blessed is the king... This is a royal this is a quote from a royal coronation psalm in Psalm 118 verse 26 Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord we bless you from the house of the Lord And the disciples continue to praise God and saying peace in heaven and glory in the highest in the unfolding of God's saving intervention peace has come or is about to on earth and in heaven. Reconciliation between humanity and God is made possible through what is about to happen. We need to understand, for Jesus as he's, as, and for Luke, he's helping us to try and see that our greatest need is the need of a Savior. Our greatest need. Jesus desire, deserves a, a triumphant entry as king, but Luke wants us to see that Jesus is instead moving to a place of rejection as we lead up to Good Friday and Easter. And then these Pharisees. These were the people. Have you ever read through Ezekiel? You should, if you're, especially if you aspire to be a leader. Because God just pours out judgment on them and on these people right here. In verse 39, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You can hear the snarling in their voice. How dare they? Jesus' response to this because the Pharisees refuse to acknowledge Jesus as the Lord. They call him teacher, not Messiah. They refuse to acknowledge him as a king. But Jesus will not be denied. Because he's a king of kings and lord of lords. And Jesus' response is great. I love it. Verse 40, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Is anything going to stop God from glorifying himself? No, no. Nothing. Nothing is going to stop what is about to happen. Nothing is going to stop what is happening and how God is revealing himself to his disciples and to us today. Nothing is going to stop. You know, I was talking with, uh, with Peter Barnaby and we were talking about his testimony not too long uh, when, after Sunday, last Sunday. And we were talking about, I'm just listening to his testimony again. Just to, and I just said this quick little comment. It's like, God chooses to save you. You can't do anything about it. Is that true? 
He's like, amen. Here Jesus is. Nothing is going to stop him. Even if his disciples were suddenly silenced, even his creation would cry out in glorifying who he is. Jesus' royal entrance into Jerusalem was a momentary triumph before an impending tragedy, a triumph that shows his true identity that he is indeed the king of kings. This passage is about Jesus revealing who he is. And as we talk about in our prayer meeting, as we work through this passage, as we look at the attributes of who God is and how he has revealed himself, the natural flowing of that is to be confronted with how lowly we are. Because when I look at God's holiness, I am quickly reminded of my sinfulness. But the gospel is this, that Christ died for our sins. The tragedy is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, creator of the universe, the one whom all things are, are sustained, he dies. But the triumph is that his, his de- he died for our sins. Those who are sinners, rebels, broken, hopeless, can know the living God. And the good news doesn't stay there because Easter comes. And God's giant stamp of approval was that Jesus indeed rose again. And for those who are his, who have repented and believed, we just need to be amazed by this passage. Think about it. Reflect upon it. The joy of Christ's disciples at his entry into Jerusalem when he came to be crucified is nothing compared to the joy of his people when he comes again to reign. Nothing. The first joy was soon broken off in exchange for sorrow and bitter tears. The second joy shall be a joy forevermore. That the first joy was often interrupted by bitter sneers of enemies who were plotting mischief. The second joy will never end. Not a word shall be said against the king when he comes a second time. Because before him, as Philippians 2 verse 11 says, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Not just those who confess Jesus as king. Every knee. The king will have his worship. And when the Pharisees told him to turn down the volume, Jesus says, I will tell you if these were silent, the very stone would cry out. You know, it's like I'm reminded of my parents. Turn down that music. That's what the Pharisees were telling Jesus. Turn it down. It's too crazy. It's too loud. And Jesus is like, "Uh uh-uh. By saying this, Jesus was claiming that he deserved the worship of whole creation. And we see that in Romans, it talks about that. That creation speaks of who God is. That no one is without excuse because creation just proclaims who God is. Even if human beings stop singing his praises, even if we as a church suddenly said, hey, I don't want to sing any about this stuff. I'm not, you know, we're just going to be a club. God will still be glorified. So even if human beings stop singing his praises, he will still have the glory that he deserves. Jesus was riding down to the Mount of Olives when he said this. 
And if necessary, every stone on the mountainside would join in his choir. The very stones of the ground would open their mouths to declare their maker's praise. The Bible says that creation waits with eager longing. Did you see that? Do you know that? For the day of salvation, when it will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Romans 8, verses 19 and 21. Here Jesus gives us the sense that in the painful longing, in this in-between, in the land of in-between, that's where we are. If you're saved, you're in the land of in-between. Just not there, not there yet. It's like driving. Here Jesus gives us a sense that in that painful longing, the creation is almost bursting to sing its song. The rocks are ready at any moment to break their stony silence and shout for joy that Jesus is indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords. His royal entrance in Jerusalem was a momentary triumph before an impending tragedy, a triumph that disclosed his true identity and invites us to acknowledge who he is. And if you have not acknowledged Jesus Christ as who he is, as Paul says, I plead with you. Recognize who he is. Because that one day he is coming back. And we don't know when. So what? Let me answer this question with a question. Because that's what we do. Will you give Jesus, King Jesus, the honor that he royally deserves? As amazing as it must have been to see his triumphant ride into Jerusalem, Jesus has even more glory now. After he was crucified for his sins, he was raised from dead and then exalted to the right hand of of God, where he sits on his royal throne. The king may not be on parade today, but even now he is receiving the homage he deserves from people all over the world men and women and children who have been saved by his amazing grace. We have such, we have so so as much opportunity to praise him as anyone. So give Jesus the honor he deserves. Acknowledge his sovereign kingship by throwing your life down before him, asking him to govern everything you think and say and do. One day Jesus will ride again in triumph. On the last of all days, he will come with angels to gather his people into his royal train. And what a day that will be. Oh, we should have sang that song. Yeah. What joy it will be to see the king enter his glory. I have never seen the queen. I've never seen the queen of England. But I live in the hope that one day I will see the king of all kings. His royal entrance into Jerusalem was a momentary triumph before an impending tragedy, a triumph that discloses his true self, his true identity. And he invites people to acknowledge him as their king. So the question still stands. Are you ready to give Jesus Christ the wealth and the worship that he royally deserves? As the one who died for your sins and rose again. Let's pray. 
Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 12 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall, see, his rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will rejoice to restore you to you double. Dear Father God, will exhaust the glory of this passage when the Amazon rivers flow backwards. The sun turns into a snow cone or the yellow twin tuna yodels. Who is it that fulfills Zachariah's magnificent vision? It is you, King Jesus. And we welcome you and rejoice in you on this Palm Sunday. No other king could vanquish war horses and warriors riding the foal of a donkey. No other king could break the battle bow of the backbone of warfare by the brokenness of the cross. No other king could replace the dominion of darkness and the tyranny of evil with the eternal reign of grace and peace. No other king would give his life and death for the redemption of rebels and idolaters like us. No other king can possibly make slaves of sin into prisoners of hope. Lord Jesus, you are the king, the king of glory, the monarch of mercy, the governor of peace, the prince of peace, the king of kings and lord of lords. Great is our rejoicing because of your grace and your salvation. You have come to us and for us, righteousness and victorious, loving and sovereign. By the riches of your grace, continue to free us from the waterless pits, broken cisterns and worthless idols. By the power of the gospel, enable us to live as prisoners of hope and agents of redemption until the day you return to finish making all things new. So every amen we pray in your holy and matchless name. Amen.